A quick reminder before we get started. The Rational Apprentice podcast is linear rather than topical. This means that the podcast should be listened to in order, starting with episode one. This also means that skipping episodes or listening out of order will prevent you from fully understanding the concepts being presented and may cause you to miss or misconstrue vital proofs. That being said, welcome to the Rational Apprentice podcast. The standard of absolute rightness in the physical sciences has been our topic of discussion, and we've seen how, in order for something to be absolutely right in physics, it must be simultaneously true and valid. But what exactly are we assessing here? Why is this important? Well, the standard of rightness in the physical sciences, truth plus validity, is a tool that's used to discover the nature of the universe. But why do we use this tool? Well, because as we can clearly see from our achievements since its formulation 350 years ago, it works, it gets results, it's profitable, and it furthers our progress toward the goal that is humans flourishing on this inhospitable rock of ours. Listen, it's not my tool. I didn't conceive of it. I wish I had. And I'm not saying that you have to agree with the concept that truth plus valid equals right. You're free to reject the concept outright, if that's what you want to do. But should you do that, you'd also have to reject all of the achievements and successes that are direct derivatives of the concept as well. Europe is trying to do this now, and we'll see how they fare this winter. We discussed this a few episodes back when we talked about how life was led for thousands of years prior to the formalization of the scientific method. Food was scarce. The only light you had came from the sun. You built your own house and furniture. The only energy available was wood. Your transportation was by foot. There was no running water. It was always too hot or too cold, too damp or too dry. There was no sanitation, no toilets. And the list goes on and on and on. So it boils down to this. It's not possible to build something, anything, based upon untrue premises or invalid thought processes. It's not possible to build a large span bridge if your value for pi is three, an untrue premise. You'll start at both ends, but you will not meet in the middle. Likewise with a gyroscope to keep your airplane in the air, or an accelerometer used by your phone for myriad things, navigation, control, counting the number of steps you take every day. Again, in physics, you can't build anything based upon false premises or invalid logic. So it should be of little surprise to you that you can't do it in volition either. As we've seen, the premise that you can help someone by stealing their property just doesn't ring true. Our 6,000-year unbroken historical record of mass murder, torture of innocence, seizure, and destruction of property, embezzlement, arson, vandalism, fraud, etc., 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 proves that beyond doubt. Now, this might be a good time to elaborate a bit on the meaning of the word wrong. The word wrong implies not right, which is to say not true or not valid. Therefore, a wrong idea or a wrong action is an idea or an action based upon untrue premises or invalid logic or both. Okay, simple enough, but an important thing to clarify. Okay, so if truth and validity together have worked so well as a standard of rightness in physics, does that mean that it will work and work well in volition? Ah, there's the elephant in the room. 
Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning, and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind of a murder case of the week. Physics is simple. The science of physics is the study of the nature of non-volitional animate phenomena, in other words, physical objects. And because it's non-volitional, there's no choice involved, making it much, much easier to make predictions based on that standard. If you're sitting at your computer and you take your hand off your mouse, the mouse is at rest, right? Now, unless you move that mouse, and assuming the table or desk is flat, that mouse will remain at what? Rest. If your mouse suddenly begins to move without your help, there can only be one explanation. There is an external force or forces acting upon that mouse. If we then assess and calculate those forces, it becomes not only possible for us to predict the behavior of the mouse with enormous precision, but possible to replicate those forces. And that mouse will end up in the same position every single time. So even though physics is most often considered to be a difficult and esoteric subject of study, it's simple in that in physics, it's easy to accurately observe cause and effect relationships. The science of volition, on the other hand, is a study of the nature of volitional animate phenomena. Can we accurately observe cause and effect and predict action or anything else? with mankind when he can choose, when he can determine his own course. For example, what does volition do to our computer mouse experiment? Were the mouse suddenly able to choose its own path? Nope, not going there. I think I'll go over here now. Or how about this? Where will you be on January 1st, 2028? Now that's a while out, isn't it? And most people don't plan that far ahead, let alone with that much detail. And there are so many variables to consider and so many unknowns that it will become very difficult to predict something like that. So let's make it easier. Where will you be tomorrow, say at 3.30 p.m.? Well, you could be planning to be at the food store or you could be picking your kid up from school. But even if those are things that you generally do at that time, there are still myriad things that could prevent you from being at the store or at the school at 3.30. Your car could break down. The school could close early. You could decide that you're simply not in the mood to go to the store or your kid could get a cold, right? Any one of those things could change where you'll be tomorrow at 3.30 and hence would invalidate our predictions. And what of right and wrong? Not in the sense of correct or incorrect, but in the sense of moral and immoral. And when it comes to physics, we don't ask questions of morality, do we? The question of whether it's moral for your meatball to run down your spaghetti across the table and onto the floor just doesn't come up. Physics isn't a study of morality. Physics is amoral. Not immoral, implying the opposite of moral or not moral, but amoral, meaning that morality simply does not apply. Okay, so in physics, we don't ask the question, is it moral for the earth to revolve around the sun? Because it has no bearing. But the science of volition is very concerned with the morality of human actions. 
So again, is the standard of rightness used in the physical science an absolute standard, meaning that it is independent of our feelings? Is that a standard that can be applied to volition with equal precision and equal success? And then, even if we can determine what is right, what is a moral action in volition, how will it be possible to get people to act rationally without the employ of force or coercion or violence? Well, first, let's define what a rational action, a rational decision is. Now, this could be a bit of a surprise to you, but a rational action is an action taken based upon true premises and valid thought processes. Very surprising, right? It's no different from the standard of absolute rightness in physics. Only in volition, we call it rational. A rational decision has the same basis. A decision made based on true premises and valid thought processes. All right? So what is a rational person? What does a rational person look like? Well, often when I talk about this, people conjure up visions of stolidity, right? Cold and robotic people, a Vulcan, if you like. But warmth and rationality are far from mutually exclusive. A rational person is simply one who strives to act and think based on rational thought processes and true premises. Rationality does not imply perfection, and rationality does not imply the absence of emotion. Everyone has, does, and will continue to make mistakes and errors. It's what you do with those mistakes and errors that makes the difference between moral action and immoral action, between rational action and irrational action. And it is always in your and everyone else's best interest to do that which is rational. Do you know which people make the greatest number of errors? Well, you're probably thinking it's the politicians, and justifiably so. But the politicians make not the greatest number, but the largest errors that impact the greatest number of people. It's the scientists who make the greatest number of errors, by design. They're supposed to make errors. That's how discovery works. It's a dedicated and required stage of the scientific method. The difference is that we make no policy until the hypothesis is sufficiently tested and then we test some more. One of the main precepts in testing is precisely to try and prove a hypothesis wrong. They're trying to break it. And when we can't prove it wrong, we've tried and tried and the hypothesis keeps passing the tests. It's then that we call it theory and we build upon it. You can always call an error a success and attempt to build upon it anyway. But this will, of course, become the root cause of more errors that you can then call successes and the cycle will continue. This is politics in a nutshell. Oh, and, uh, and, and meteorology. But the absolute way to avoid making errors is to simply attempt nothing. You can't fail at anything if you don't try to do anything. But of course, this leads to the biggest error of them all. Wasted time and hence wasted property. Okay, so let's return to the question I posted a few minutes ago. Can we accurately observe cause and effect and predict action when humans are volitional? Well, there are two very different questions being asked here. First, can we accurately observe cause and effect when humans are volitional? And second, can we accurately predict action 
when humans are volitional. Volition, notwithstanding, the natural laws of the universe apply. For every effect, there is a cause. The complexity of the cause may make it difficult to discern or to isolate, especially when those causes are being obfuscated or hidden, but that's another topic. But causes are always discernible when the scientific method is used properly. For example, it's not hard to conclude that value wanes as supply increases. There are all kinds of examples of this. You're in the desert. It's very hot. Compare the amount you would pay for a bottle of water when, one, you have no water, and two, you have a thousand bottles of water with you. How about this? You're on your way to grandma's for Thanksgiving. Compare the amount you would pay for a first-class upgrade when, one, you live paycheck to paycheck, or two, you have a high-paying job. In both cases, as you increase the supply of something, in our case, water, the first one, and money, the second one, the value of each additional piece falls. So we place much less value on the 1,001st bottle of water, and we place much less value on the 250,000th dollar. Now, the opposite is true, too, of course. How much are you willing to pay for fuel when you have no other way to get to work? And what if the second part of the question, can we accurately predict action when humans are volitional? Well, let me add something to this. Let me make this a seemingly more difficult hurdle by adding, even if we can determine what is a right, what is a moral action in volition, how will it be possible to get people to act rationally without the employ of force or coercion or violence? And to answer these, I humbly return you to the examples I brought up all the way back in episode six. Allow me to quote myself. Did the blacksmiths who made chainmail armor have to first destroy the leather armors before chainmail got popular? Did the train manufacturers have to destroy the stagecoach industry? Did Westinghouse have to picket the use of washboards before people would go out and buy a clothes washer? Did GE have to kill all the candle makers before the light bulb took off? Word processors, the typewriter, smartphones, the Nokia phone? No. In every case, the new product was simply marketed alongside the old, and the free market decided which was better, by itself, with no external influence needed. The best product is recognized for being best, faster, cheaper, more efficient, and that's what people gravitate to naturally. No destruction required. No force required. So, is it possible to accurately predict the actions of people despite them being volitional beings? Absolutely. And not despite them being volitional, because they are volitional. And how will it be possible to get people to act rationally without the employee of force or coercion or violence? By simply making it profitable to do so. We market the new product alongside the old and the free market will decide what is better by itself with no external influence, no force, coercion needed. And what is our new product? Only the most important product ever devised by man. Freedom. In the next episode of the Rational Apprentice podcast, we will discuss the nature and definition 
of morality so that I can give you the true usable solution to the question, how do you know you are right? You know what time it is. Mind Over Murder is next up. Today's Mind Over Murder is a case study in deception. We're talking about the straw man fallacy, a manipulative method of argumentation that involves exaggeration and misrepresentation to assault the ideas or the stance of an intellectual opponent. Now, that all sounds very complicated and lofty, so let's break it down a bit. Let's imagine that we have two people, Ron and Carl, and Ron and Carl are having a discussion on some topic in which they're taking opposite stances. Now, there are myriad examples of this. It doesn't have to be such controversial topics as firearms, gun control, affirmative action, monetary policy, foreign policy, or abortion, right? It can be, as we'll see, something as innocuous as the age-old debate about leaving the seat up in the bathroom, all right? Now, a straw man occurs when Ron ignores Carl's position on an issue. Instead of responding to what Carl says... Ron exaggerates, misrepresents, or creates a distorted version of that position and then uses that version to attack. But don't be deceived. The straw man fallacy is amazingly effective if you can get away with it. Because if Carl doesn't recognize what Ron is doing, Carl will lose control of the point he's trying to make. Well, why? Two primary reasons. First, because the exaggerated and misrepresented version of Carl's point makes it much easier for Ron to refute. And second, because Ron is now placed in a position of having to defend a position that's not his own, right? This is one of the most overlooked, you could call it errors or you could call it tricks, but it's one of the most overlooked errors or tricks in reasoning, and its use has been on a steep incline over the past uh, decades. Its effect is to actually change the point of discussion. And if it's successfully pulled off, the perpetrator can gain significant advantage. Okay, I gave you some easy examples from the fallacy detective in this week's newsletter. But a prime example of this is Florida's parental rights and education bill, which was strawmanned into the don't say gay bill. Now, whether you agree with the bill or not is not pertinent here, and I'm not bringing it up to take a stance either way. You can do that all by yourself, okay? But don't be fooled. Make your decision based upon what is actually in the bill, not what is in the manufactured straw man of the bill. You may find that you agree or disagree with the bill for reasons that are never discussed by even the corporate media or social media crowds. Okay, but frankly, the Florida bill straw man is easy to spot if you do any kind of research at all. So let's look at a much more complex straw man argument from the Checkers speech uh, given by Richard Nixon in 1952. Now, I know that this all seems very quaint compared to everything that we've seen in the last few years. But at the time, Nixon had been accused of misappropriation of campaign funds. In particular, $18,000 in campaign funds were allegedly appropriated for personal use. Nixon gave a televised response to these allegations, speaking in particular about a contribution received from one supporter. In this instance, the gift was a dog. Now, here's what Nixon said. Quote, 
It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog. In a crate, he had sent it all the way from Texas, black and white, spotted, and our little girl, Trisha, six years old, named it Checkers. And you know the kids, like all kids, loved the dog. And I just wanted to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it, unquote. Now, did you catch the straw man? Because this one's good. The issue was the $18,000 that Nixon allegedly appropriated for personal use. The problem was never about the dog, per se. But instead of refuting or addressing the 18000 he denied that it was wrong for them to keep the dog, an issue that was never brought up. Nixon never actually stated the straw man directly, and this is what was so clever and cunning about it. So take note here, because this is very important for you to understand, okay? Nixon did not mention the 18000 Had he done so, it would have been easy to spot that he changed the subject from the 18000 misappropriation to the keeping of the dog. Nixon's manipulation here was masterful. Not only did he change the subject away from the 18000 but the use of his daughter... Stripping the dog away from his little daughter makes him the victim here. It's brilliant and disgusting. Okay? Now, I know I went over this in the newsletter today, but being able to spot and defeat straw man attacks is such an important skill. I need to state it again for those who might have missed the newsletter. After all, it did come out late today. Okay? First, Make sure you begin your discussion statements as clearly and definitively as possible. Because it's much easier to distort what you're saying when your words and sentences are vague and ambiguous. Second, call out the straw man argument immediately. The longer you allow the argument to go on by accepting the premise of the straw man, the more difficult it will be for you to get the discussion back on track. Okay? All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly Mind Over Murder case notes, you'll need to sign up for the weekly Substack newsletter. And don't forget that all summer long, we're adding a second Mind Over Murder puzzle for the kids as part of the Mind Over Murder summer series. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, courses, and bonus materials coming out in the near future, and I know you're going to want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.substack.com to sign up for free right now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.